Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. In a few minutes, we're going to begin reading in verse 19. Uh, it'll be a short read from the text this morning and just a few application points. Um, I wanted to begin, though, by reading something different to you. Uh, this is an article that was published by Joel Beakey. He's a, a Christian man whose uh, writings I've come to respect and benefit from. He wrote an article about something that I'd never heard of, and I wanted to share parts of it with you. Uh, during the 16th century, the Reformed churches in the Netherlands experienced severe persecution at the hands of Philip II of Spain, who was an ally of the Roman Catholic Church. At that time, the Roman Catholic Church um, was the main religious institution in the known world, and uh, to go against the church was to be a Protestant. We, we still call ourselves Protestants today, the idea of protesting. Um, in 1561, Guido de Bray prepared a confession in French as an apologetic for a band of Reformed believers in the Low Countries who formed the so-called Churches Under the Cross. Today, his confession is known as the Belgic Confession. Now, it's called a confession because it was, it was a confession. It was admitting to the authorities, a sense, in written form, this is what I believe, this is what we believe. Um, Debray uh, was most likely assisted by fellow pastors who wanted to prove to their persecutors that the adherents of the Reformed faith were not rebels, but law-abiding citizens who professed biblical teachings. He famously threw the confession over a castle wall as a testimony to Roman Catholic authorities that the Reformed faith was not heretical. The year after it was written, a copy of Debray's confession was sent to King Philip II, along with the statement that the petitioners were ready to obey the government in all things lawful, but would offer their backs to stripes, their tongues to knives, their mouths to gags, and their whole bodies to the fire, well knowing that those who follow Christ must take his cross and deny themselves, rather than deny the truth expressed in that confession." Um, the article goes on for a while, but it gives uh, just a two sentences that I'll read from you to give you a taste of the confession. Now, we're more familiar with other confessions, maybe the Westminster Confession, more prominent ones, but this one predated those, and it, it had a bit of, of poetic nature to it. Uh, Beakey writes, After listing the attributes of God, the confession adds that He is, quote, the overflowing fountain of all good. That's the article one. That's pretty good, huh? It compares God's creation to, quote, a most elegant book wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to contemplate the invisible things of God. It's Article 2. So pretty special. Uh, in 1567, after the siege of Valentinus, Debray was arrested for his Calvinistic beliefs, his rebellion uh, during the siege. He was tried before the Spanish Inquisition, received the death penalty, and was hanged at Valenciennes. He died in front of a large crowd after making final statements of his belief. He was pushed off the scaffold by the hangman while still addressing the crowd. Twelve days before his death, he wrote a letter to his wife, which speaks of his trust in God. So we have the letter, and I won't read the whole thing to you. It's a bit lengthy, but I'll, I'll read a few excerpts <clears throat> to prepare the way for it. 
uh, our reading in Philippians. He writes to his wife, I feel your sorrow over this separation more keenly than mine. I pray you not to be troubled too much over this for fear of offending God. You knew when you married me that you were taking a mortal husband who was uncertain of life. And yet it has pleased God to permit us to live together for seven years, giving us five children. If the Lord had wished us to live together longer, he would have provided the way. But it did not please him to do this, and may his will be done. Now remember that I did not fall into the hands of my enemies by mere chance, but through the providence of my God, who controls and governs all things, the least as well as the greatest. Then he goes on to make um, many of the same references that we make when we think about the sovereignty of God in his letter to his wife. And this is a man who knows he's going to die. And rather than simply writing a flowery goodbye to his wife, he is uh, determined to continue to do what a husband should do, which is strengthen his wife's faith and try to help her walk through this very difficult thing. He says, and this is his many biblical references in a row here, this, the sovereignty of God, this is shown by the words of Christ when he said, be not afraid, your very hairs are numbered. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And not one of them shall fall to the ground without the will of your father. Then fear nothing, you are more excellent than many sparrows. These words of divine wisdom say that God knows the number of my hairs. How then can harm come to me without the command and providence of God? It could not happen unless one should say that God is no longer God. This is why the prophet says that there is no affliction in the city that the Lord has not willed. Many saintly persons who were before us consoled themselves in their afflictions and tribulations with this doctrine. Joseph, having been sold by his brothers and taken into Egypt, says, You did a wicked deed, but God has turned it to your good. God sent me into Egypt before you for your profit. Genesis 50. David also experienced this when Shimei cursed him, so too in the case of Job and many others. And that is why the evangelist writes so carefully of the sufferings and of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, adding, and this was done that that which was written of him might be accomplished. The the same should be said of all the members of Christ. And you can hear him preaching in his last words to his wife. He acknowledges that he had moments of doubt and despair while in this experience and that it's been a hard experience. But then he says, Then my heart began to feel a great repose. I began then to say, My God, you have caused me to be born in the time that you have ordained. During all the time of my life, you have kept me and preserved me from great dangers, and you have delivered me from them all. And if at my present hour has come, in which I will pass from this life to you, may your will be done. I cannot escape from your hands, and if I could... I would not, since it is happiness for me to conform to your will. These thoughts made my heart cheerful again. He speaks on to his wife. This separation is not for all time. The Lord will receive you also to join us together again in our head, Jesus Christ. This is not the place of our habitation. That is in heaven. This is only the place of our journey. 
That is why we long for our true country, which is heaven. We desire to be received in the home of our heavenly Father, to see our brother, head, and Savior, Jesus Christ, to see the noble company of patriarchs, prophets, apostles, and many thousands of martyrs, into whose company I hope to be received when I have finished the course of my work, which I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ. Later, he says, I am happy. My heart is light, and it lacks nothing in my afflictions. He writes, I am practicing now what I have preached to others, and I must confess that when I preached, I would speak about the things that I'm actually experiencing as a blind man speaks of color. Since I was taken prisoner, I have profited more and learned more than during all the rest of my life. I am in a very good school. The Holy Spirit inspires me continually and teaches me how to use the weapons in this combat. On the other side is Satan, the adversary of all children of God. He is like a boisterous roaring lion. He constantly surrounds me and seeks to wound me. But he who has said, fear not, for I have overcome the world, makes me victorious. And already I see that the Lord puts Satan under my feet, and I feel the power of God perfected in my weakness. He goes on and he speaks to her about being a widow and makes sure she understands that it is perfectly reasonable to him if she remarries and that if that will make her happy and help her in life, she should do so. And he ends his letter, Your faithful husband, Guy Debris, minister of the word of God in Valentinus and presently prisoner for the Son of God at the aforesaid place. Now, I read that to you because we have something um, that would seem to be easy to dismiss in plain language this morning in the text. We have Paul talking about living and dying. Just as Guy Debris was a prisoner in Valentinus, so uh, Paul was a prisoner in Rome. Uh, just as he was uncertain of the outcome that he would see in Valentinus, so Paul was uncertain, and we watch him in the text this morning wrestle with that uncertainty, and you'll see it right away when we begin to read. These are not mere words. This is a real man dealing with his real faith, and what he says about his life, what he says about the prospects in front of him, is not something he's saying just to put a good face on it. I think that's the danger this morning. You could read what Paul says here and say, well, he's just putting a good face on these circumstances. He's trying to be a good example, but that's not the case. No more than it was the case for Guy Debray and Valenciennes. Yes, it was a bad situation. Yes, it was scary. Yes, it was humiliating and shameful. And both Paul and Guy Debray recognized the enemy behind it. It was not soldiers or emperors or Caesars or kings. It was Satan, the adversary of God's children. Um, and yet in those circumstances, um, both Paul and Guy Debris had learned to be happy and to accept what God would do. They did this through deep theology and doctrine. They did this by understanding that their jailers were not sovereign over their lives, that this world was not their home, and that the promises of Christ were real and valid and tangible. Um, listen to Paul then in Philippians chapter 1. We'll read beginning in verse 19 and we'll go through verse 26. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer 
and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now that was last week's sermon. We did that last week. Okay, this week, beginning in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So what does he say here? Well, he makes what would seem to be a claim that you have to say is either absurd or you have to say it's unique to Paul. He says, if I live, it will be serving Christ. It will be as Christ. If I die, it will be gain. And then in verse 23, uh, verse 22, he begins the line of thought, yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell for I am hard-pressed between the two, he's expressing that he's not sure which he would prefer. Now, there are very few people in the world who, if you go around and ask them what their preference would be, whether living or dying, that they would say, I don't know, actually. Um, You could dismiss this again as just Paul setting a good example. You could do that. You shouldn't. If you believe God's word is divinely inspired, you can't, but you could. On the other hand, you could say, well, Paul that we know of didn't have, you know, a wife at home with children at home. And, you know, so maybe for Paul, in his circumstance, he could say that, but that's not for everybody. But if you go that route, then what you're saying flies in the face of testimonies like the one we read this morning and thousands and thousands of others, people with wives and children and homes and parents and friends and family. So I would caution you at the outset here about dismissing what Paul is saying here as, you know, pie-in-the-sky Christian idealism. That's not what this is. Paul is, if you listen to Paul when he writes these letters, he's not much of a pie-in-the-sky, idealistic kind of guy. He is very real. He's very practical. And when he tells you that he honestly is not certain what his preference would be at this point, whether to be completely let go and given all his freedom back and let loose in the world or be killed, be executed, he means what he's saying. And it's incumbent upon you, the hearer of that, to ask yourself the question, how does a man or a woman get to that spot? 
Now, we're familiar with things like assisted suicide and people who are ready for the plug to be pulled and things like that. We're familiar with that. We understand how someone in despair gets to that spot. We understand how someone who is depressed gets to that spot or someone who is not in their right mind gets to that spot. And yet, Paul's assertion in Philippians already is that he is not depressed. He is not despairing. That actually he is being used by God in a good way. This is the same man who says, rejoice, rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice and will rejoice. This is not a depressed person. His saying, and you might make this mistake, so don't make it. His saying, for me to die is gain, is not him saying, I'm so sick of these, you know, <laughs> I'm so sick of all this pain and agony and I don't want to be in this world, I don't want to live anymore. That's, that's not it. He's not simply saying, life is really hard and I'm ready for it to be over. It sounds like that because we're familiar with it, but that's not it. He's saying a very theologically and doctrinally true thing. For a Christian to die in this world, it will be nothing but profit and gain for them. It will be nothing but good things for that person. If you're a Christian today, and this afternoon, you close your eyes to take a nap and you never wake up, if that is you this afternoon, that will not be a great loss for you. It will only be gain. Paul believed that. He believed that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now we say that the Lord is with us. And, and when we say that, we mean spiritually so. The Holy Spirit of God is with us. But when we close our eyes to this world we will open our eyes to the physical presence of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that eye has not seen, nor can we imagine the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Paul believed this. He not only comforted himself with it, he truly believed it. And he saw his circumstances in this world as a pilgrimage, a journey, a labor, a work. Heaven is rest. Heaven is Sabbath. Heaven is relief. Down here is work and toil and pain. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. If I continue on, I'll keep working. And as I keep working... God will bless that work. So, you know, hit the holy, God's word will not return unto him void. If, if I stay alive, if I'm spared and I go back to Christian ministry all over, wherever God leads me, I'll simply be doing what God wills and I know there will be profit in that. There'll be fruit in that labor. Yet, what I shall choose, I cannot tell. Now, it wasn't his choice. He's not saying that the choice belongs to him. He's saying, I don't know which I would prefer, to be honest. For I am hard-pressed between the two. More fruitful labor or <laughs> paradise with my Lord. 
having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. That's his analysis. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. My labor, if I stay, will be on your behalf and on behalf of the other churches. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. In other words, because I know that your progress of faith, um, your joy in the faith, is best served by me surviving, I'm pretty confident that God will spare me and put me back to work. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. That's the passage. Now, I just want to make three application points this morning, and we will be done with these verses. First, it would be wise to ask if we can say with Paul, to live as Christ. Forget the second part of that for a minute. It would be wise to ask if we can truly say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. Paul says, if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor for the Lord. It would be wise to ask yourself, can I say that? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there are two verses I'll read to you, verses 14 and 15. Paul again writing in that letter, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, so that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's his analysis. Now, because Jesus died on the cross for us, and at the cross all of our sin is defeated, then those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So it would be wise to ask yourself, can I say with Paul that for me to live is Christ? The question might be reworded, are you living for yourself or do you live for the Lord? That's a very biblical question. It sounds trite. It sounds common. You've probably been asked that before in church services. When we talk about giving our lives to Jesus, we use that vernacular. We use that language because of that very question. Am I living for Christ or am I living for myself? Now, in the analysis of am I living for myself, before we excuse ourselves, we must not do away with the challenge of that question by saying, well, I don't live for myself because I really serve my wife or my husband or my children or my mom or my dad or my family or these. We must be careful not to excuse ourselves with that reasoning so quickly, and we should remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, when he says in verses 37 and 38, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. In other words, we cannot dismiss the, am I living for myself 
question so quickly by saying, well, I'm clearly living for my family or for the, the people that I love around me. That is not acceptable. We are warned not to do that. Now, it is godly for a man or a woman to provide for his family. It is right to love and to be a good husband, to be a good wife. But simply providing for your family or trying to be a good husband or a good wife or a good son or a good daughter is not a way out of the conundrum. The question, can we say with Paul, to live is Christ? If I live, it will mean work for Jesus. It will mean labor for Jesus. Is that what defines your life? Not do you have sections of your life where you can say it falls into that category? Is that what defines your life, your labor for the Lord? I think it's wise to ask that question and to answer it of yourselves this morning. And if you find yourselves answering it unsatisfactorily, be comforted by a father who loves his children and who warns his children in his word long before a day of judgment comes. We should love and serve the Lord with all of our hearts. Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 and 8 give us a warning. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now sowing is labor. It's work. If you've planted a garden, if you've worked in a field, if you've driven by one, you know that sowing is work. Sowing seed is, what, is labor. And the warning is, God is not mocked, and he's writing to a church in Galatia, meaning, be careful, Christians in Galatia, you cannot make a fool out of God. And in the context of this, it's pretty clear what he's suggesting is, we might be tempted to raise our hands and say, I am a servant of God, while the actual labor that we do in our lives is not service to God. We might say, I'm a servant of God, while our lives do not represent service for God. And if we did that, it would be as if we had the audacity to mock God to His face. That's what, that's what the warning is. Now, I know that's hard. And I don't think anybody here has a heart to do that this morning. I think that's why Paul is writing it this way to the church in Galatia. I don't think the people in Galatia were thinking about it that way either. But that's the pungency of the warning. That that's not what we would mean to do. But might it be what we are actually doing? Again, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for a man reaps what he sows. Okay, now here's the, the flip part of that. He explains what he's talking about. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. In other words, the person who labors for his flesh, the person who labors according to his own will, what he desires in the flesh, selfishness. It could be selfishness that the world would applaud, like, oh, it's very noble of that person or very, you know, very accomplished of that person. Or it could be selfishness that the world would discourage. I can't believe that they would just give themselves over to, over to you know, alcoholism or whatever it is. The world will look positive on some of these things and negative on some of these things. That's not the point. The point is the one whose labor is after his own self-interest. Or we might, again, to implore the warning of Christ, we might add his self-interest expressed in his family or the people he specifically loves. We might even include that. The one whose labor is after the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. 
Now, what does he mean by corruption in the verse? Because he could mean a lot of things. He could mean corruption in the sense of you're going to get bad things that happen to you in your life. Because that's true. If you are engaged in sin, there are often very practical consequences that happen to you in the world as you engage in that sin. That's true. But is that what he means here? It's not. And you know it's not because of the second half of that verse. He says, but he who sows to the Spirit, this is according to the Holy Spirit's leadership in a person's life, will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So the comparison here is not between bad things that happen and blessings. The person who does selfish, sinful, just normal, run-of-the-mill human living will reap a corruption beyond the practical implications of however their life turns out, will reap an eternal corruption. And that eternal corruption, the judgment of God, is in contrast to the person who lives their life, who labors under the Holy Spirit, who will reap everlasting life. The contrast is an eternal contrast. It's eternal life versus eternal condemnation. It's not just good things versus bad things. It's not more money versus less money, or health versus sickness, or whatever else. It's about where you spend eternity in the presence of God who gave His only Son to save you or banished from God's presence in a place where there is no grace of God present in any sense, eternal hell, separation from God in hell. So again, we'll move on. It is wise to ask yourself this morning, can I say with Paul, to live is Christ? Second, it would also be wise to ask, if our doctrine, if what we believe the Bible teaches, that's doctrine, is right, and if we rightly believe it concerning death as gain for the Christian. It would be smart, not merely to ask, am I living for Christ? It would be wise of us to also ask, is what I believe about God's Word is, is what I believe about life and death and heaven and hell? Is it right and is it rightly believed? In other words, have I truly embraced this or is this just something I tell myself to help me sleep better at night or to help me at a funeral or to help me when I think of the possibility of sickness and death for my wife or my husband or my children? Are these just words that I say because they're a little helpful from time to time? They're a little comforting from time to time? Or am I truly aligned with what this means? It would be wise to work on that now as opposed to waiting for tragedy to be at your front door and trying to wrestle with it anew. Um, I want to break down this point won't take me long. I want to break down one part that I read to you from Guy Debris's letter to his wife. Very, very carefully, I want to break it down with Scripture. I want you to see the doctrine, the teaching of God's Word and what he is preaching to his wife. Now listen to this. The first statement he made was, this is not the place of our habitation. That is in heaven. This is only the place of our journey. That is why we long for our true country which is heaven. That is a biblical doctrine. That could be straight out of a catechism. 
that could be straight out of a confession. Hebrews 11.13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen, from, having seen them from afar off, were assured of them. They embraced the promises of God. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. A stranger is someone who is not in his own home. A pilgrim is someone who is traveling through an area that is not their home. This is a biblical truth, a biblical doctrine. If you are a Christian... You are not a citizen of this world. You are a citizen, in fact, an heir to the kingdom of God. You will inherit the kingdom of God. And it is normal for a Christian to feel strange in this world, to look strange in this world, to sound strange in this world. Because we are pilgrims in a land that is not our home. And here's a man consoling his wife with this truth. Honey, I know you believe this, but really believe this. He goes on to say, We desire to be received in the home of our Heavenly Father. John 14, 2. This is Jesus speaking. Let not your heart be troubled. Almost as if he's speaking to this man's wife. Let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. When he writes, we desire to be received in the home of our Heavenly Father, that is doctrinally sound. We have a home. It's not this world. Christ has prepared it. It is with God. He says, and so I will see our brother Head and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know that you may call Jesus your brother as a child of God? John 14, 3, Jesus speaking. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. It is right to say, I will be with the Lord. The Bible tells us, and so we will always be with the Lord. But not just the Lord. He writes, to see the noble company of patriarchs, prophets, and apostles, and many thousands of martyrs into whose company I hope to be received when I have finished the course of my work. I receive from my Lord Jesus Christ. It is not merely solo fellowship with God what is coming to us. It is fellowship with a family that we have only partially met and engaged here on this earth. It is a family fuller and truer. It is a family just as real, if not more so for many of us, than the family we experience in the flesh. Revelations, Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 13 speak of some of this, of the, the family assembled there. It says this, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, every tongue, and people, and nation. So this family has been assembled. 
and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Listen, maybe your experiences with Christian people on this earth have been a mixed bag. I would say for most Christians, certainly everyone I've met, their experiences with Christian people on the earth are a mixed bag. We know what that relationship should be. It should be one of unity and of mutual support and exhortation and encouragement. We know that. We know that's what it should be. Sometimes it's not. Maybe oftentimes it's not. That's what it means to be in this world. And yet, I don't believe you can be a Christian for an extended period of time, rightly in the fellowship of God's people, without developing at least a relationship or two that matter and that are real. Now think about that. When you are in heaven with God, you will be surrounded by thousands and thousands, rightly we might say, millions of people who are no longer burdened by sin, who no longer have any self-interest, and you don't think you will have fellowship and joy and friendship there. If you can find one or two people in a sorry lot like this to really enjoy true friendship with, can you imagine what heaven will be like? Fellowship of God's people. We'll move on to the third point. Finally, we should ask ourselves to what extent we are contributing to the progress and joy of faith in those in our church, as Paul was committed to the Philippian church. In verse 25, Paul says, I am being confident of this. I know I shall remain and continue with you all. Why? For the progress and joy of faith. Now, this is about as application centric as I get, but are you contributing to the progress and to the joy of Christians' faith in our church? That's what Paul wanted to do in the Philippian church. He wanted to contribute to the progress and to the joy of their faith. Are, are you doing that? Am I doing that? We would be wise to ask that question. Are you doing that? I'll make a one simple pastoral plea to you on this regard. Please open your home to Christian people in our church. Please open your lives to Christian people in our church. Don't just go to the same fellowship groups and friends that you've had forever and ever. Don't just run to them after the service. Don't just invite them. Don't just schedule with them. Don't just visit with them. If you want to labor for Christ, as Paul did, look at the congregation of people and ask, how can I contribute 
to the progress and to the joy of this person's faith. You're going to have a hard time doing that without knowing who they are, without speaking with them, without praying or caring for them, thinking about them. So a pastoral challenge, and this is not a, hear me, this is a challenge, this is not a condemnation, this is not a judgment. I, I have no desire to make you feel guilty, I'm encouraging you. You will get great reward, I promise you, if not on this earth, in heaven, from pouring your life out for the progress and joy of faith in the lives of God's people. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did. That's what you are called to do. You may be called to do other things. In fact, you probably are. Some of those things may be very specific to you. But we are all called to love the body of Christ. You need to take that call seriously. If you're a member of our church who's been here for longer than you can remember, and that's a lot of us, it should not sit well with you if there are people coming and sitting faithfully. And you don't know. <laughs> I don't know them. I don't know the names of their children. I don't know what's going on in their life. I don't know their background. I don't even know if they're saved. That shouldn't. Now, that doesn't mean you should be guilt-stricken and, oh, my gosh, I'm going to hell. The pastor said I'm a terrible person. No, but it shouldn't sit well with you. Don't let it sit that way. Don't let it sit that way. Commit yourselves to contributing to the progress and joy of faith of God's people. And you won't have to worry about answering the first question of whether you live for Christ. It'll happen. It'll happen. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we are mortal people in flesh and bone, and when we open up your word and are asked to consider and put our faith in spiritual things, it doesn't matter how many years I have been serving you or wanting to serve you, my flesh still resists. This seems more like idealism than reality, and Father, I am praying for your Holy Spirit to give in each of us a measure of faith to take action where we know we can take action to not merely relegate this to thoughtful contemplation on a Sunday afternoon, but to be the hands and feet of the body of Christ and the lives of your people. If there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, who has not been saved because they have not placed their faith in the work of Jesus Christ at the cross, who has not professed faith in the Lord, who has not been baptized, who is faithfully attending while carefully considering these things. Move them out of that position. Help them to hear your word that today is the day of salvation. Convict them to the extent that they must do nothing but surrender their lives to you who have loved them enough that you did not spare your own son. Bless these tithes, these offerings that we give. Help them to be used for your purposes. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.